Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, everyone. In today's episode of Innovative Legal Leadership, I'm speaking to Ivan Fong. Ivan is currently the Executive Vice President, General Counsel and Secretary at Medtronic, but it's a new position. He's only been there for a couple of months. He's better known, certainly, for his um, 10 or so years at 3M as the most senior legal officer there. Um, So Ivan takes us through his journey, his career, but goes way back to... 1949, when his parents fled communist China to to emigrate into the US. So he takes us back that far. And he takes us through his journey. It's a fascinating discussion. A couple of highlights for me is how Ivan and the and the senior leadership at 3M dealt with COVID, the clarity of the priorities that were set by the G by the CEO, in fact, at the time and how that galvanised the troops across the organisation, including legal. So that's a standout for me. Ivan also talks about getting his arms around his current role and what the priorities for getting on top of, essentially, um, Medtronic and what he's focused on. So that's a fascinating part of the discussion too. So lots of learnings here, some fantastic book recommendations too, also from Ivan. So the um, I'm sure you're going to enjoy, enjoy it. It's a fantastic discussion. Ivan is an incredibly accomplished lawyer. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Ivan Fong, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm very excited about the interview. Thank you so much, Jim. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yep, no, so am I. Ivan, so you've recently joined, of course, as the Executive Vice President, General Counsel and Secretary of Medtronic. That, you're very fresh. That's only a couple of months in. Before that, at Medtronic for, I think, over nine years. Sorry, at uh, 3M, I should say, for over nine years. And we're going to do a bit of a deeper dive there. But tell me a little bit about the Ivan Fong story, perhaps before we get to 3M. What was that journey like? Some of the key learnings and some of perhaps some of the, I ask often for what are some of the pivotal moments um, you remember as being kind of formative in those years? Well, thanks, uh, Jim. It's um, it's hard to, to start this story without going all the way back to when my parents fled China uh, during the communist revolution in 1949, 1950. So they fled to Hong Kong and then later came to the U.S., got married. I was born uh, in New York City when my parents uh, were in graduate school. Uh, We moved to uh, California for them to finish graduate school. And then I grew up in suburban Washington, D.C., so in Maryland, where my parents were uh, scientists and engineers federal government employees. And so I grew up in a household where all my parents' friends were scientists or engineers, and I naturally gravitated towards studying engineering. The first, I'd say, critical formative path change was when I decided that I didn't want to get a PhD, although I was all set to finish uh, my studies uh, in chemical engineering. And that came about because I took a class on, of all things, the Supreme Court and fell in love with the class. And the professor was the first 
person who really encouraged me to think about going to law school. Until that point, nobody had put that idea in my mind. I knew no lawyers growing up. No one in my family to this day is a lawyer. So it was really an idea that had not occurred to me. But because I so respected this professor, I said, okay, I will think about it. I ended up working in Washington, D.C. for a summer after uh, my junior year in college. And I learned during that summer that there was a need for people who had a science and technical background to be in uh, the legal and policy world. And so because I also at the time was active in the college newspaper, so I knew I liked to write, I thought, well, maybe, you know, being a lawyer might be a, a path forward. And so I applied thinking, you know, if I don't get in, then I'll just continue on my path to being an engineer. And, you know, as fate would have it, I uh, did get in and went to law school and tell people it was the second best decision I made. The first best decision I made was marrying my wife. Excellent. Uh, I was going to predict that one, but you, you beat me to Now, hang on. You, you've skipped past the conversation that you had with your mother and father mm. when you came home and you said to them for the very first time, guess what I'm thinking about? So it's an interesting question because my parents had different reactions. My father was supportive because I think he realized that in the United States, lawyers play an important role. That if you look at the front page of the newspaper, you know, usually there will be something about some lawyer or court decision or some legislative enactment or policy decision. My mother, on the other hand, was not sure why I would, you know, her words were not throw away, but why I was abandoning, you know, this profession of being an engineer. But I think she's now come around. So that's what's important. Fantastic. Well, I mean, and that's a great story. Um, and so, so there are a couple of different, I mean, you've done the first, one of the early things you did, of course, you clerked for um, in the Supreme Court for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. So what a great grounding for you. You had time as um, as a partner at Covington and Burling, um, spent time at GE, spent time in the US Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice. So you've got this, in, what, what sounds like an incredible kind of grounding, whether it's government, whether it's private, the Supreme Court. Is this deliberate by you to, is it following an interest? Is it happenstance? So I'm interested to know at that early stage of your career, how deliberate that path was. So none of it was planned. I think that's the easy part of your question. Great. And that's what, that's what, the, that's what the audience loves to hear. That that's great. True. <laughs> it is absolutely true. In fact, I once gave a, a, a speech or talk to um, a law school alumni group in which I talked about how I never could have imagined when I graduated from law school that I would become the Department of Homeland Security's general counsel. And that's because when the, at the time I graduated, there was no such thing as the Department of Homeland Security. And so my message to the audience was, if you think forward 5, 10, 15, 20 years, there will be jobs that you will do that do not exist today. So you must be adaptable and you must be willing to take some risk by taking a leap of faith 
and not having every step of your career planned out, you know, to the minute. And, and I think that's both liberating and reassuring to law students and recent graduates. That said, I don't want to say that what I've done is aimless. I do think that um, I've been very fortunate to have had the breadth of opportunities that I've had. And I have, I'd say since a young age, wanted to give back to our country and to the community, partly because of my immigrant uh, family background that, you know, my parents came here with relatively modest means and this country's been so good uh, to our family that the least I can do is give back uh, to, to the country. And so public service and community service are both an important part of who I am, but just an important set of experiences that I think have, have made me um, a better lawyer. I also think that being in-house is an important career path option that uh, when I was graduating from law school and early on really wasn't as, you know, didn't have the same stature and recognition that it has today. So I am continuing on a journey to make sure that when I talk to law students and recent graduates that um, think about think about your career in phases that in the beginning, you may not really know what you want to do, and that's okay. Get experience, learn from really great lawyers, and over time, be open to the possibility of doing something different. Don't feel that the decision you make right out of law school is the place you'll be for the rest of your life. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. So there's a couple of themes there, um, Ivan, that we've heard a lot, and I love. What one, you'll you'll see at the end of this, I'll ask you, you know, what, what advice that you'll give to your 25 year old self. But let me tell you, one of the most popular answers to that, and I hear time and time again, is, no, I wish I just took a little bit more risk in my early years. And that's not kind of silly risk. That is risk that that makes you grow, learn, and open to new opportunities. And that's what you've just talked about there, being open to opportunities. I do feel, and I can, I've said this before, I can see it with my kind of adult children now, there is a, a kind of a sense that the decision you make is a forever decision and a lot of stress around that forever decision. But I... I I try to do what I can to relieve of that stress, that relieve that stress, and say no, no, no. It's about experiences, being open opportunities, and being comfortable taking an element of risk and the unknown. That's where the growth happens, and that's where that's where the learning really is. So it's interesting you talk about the same thing: risk and opportunity. So I have a story about that. Um, so it was in law school, actually. Uh, that I remember walking down the hallway, and I was a first-year law student probably, and at the time you may um, uh, imagine, you know, there was a second year or third year, some, you know, more senior law student who was telling a small group of people, I'm going to share with you the secret of success. And so I'm walking by, and I hear this, and of course I stop. And I listen, right? I, I, I like, listen, I want to I hear this. This is a moment out of a graduate movie, right? We're about to hear like this 
incredible pearl of wisdom. And this person said, the secret to success is work hard and take calculated risks, which is exactly what you just said. And for some reason, that phrase stuck with me. And when I've told this story to others, more recently, somebody has said, and based on your career, I would add a third thing. And I said, what's that? And she said, work hard, take calculated risks, and stay true to your values. Right? When I talk about my desire to do public service, to do pro bono work, to be committed to diversity, inclusion, and equity, right? finding those roles that enable you to do those things is part of staying true to your values. So that's what I would say. I love that. And sometimes, Ivan, it takes a while, I think, to actually realize how important especially that third bit is because you can work hard take out the risk but if you if you feel a little untrue to yourself that's not a great experience and then ultimately that will that will find a way to undo i think well you know, a level of happiness and so forth so and it sometimes it takes a while to get there because you're so focused on what it might be career advancing but that you know, true to oneself, working out that what that oneself is, that that to me is all, all, all part of that kind of, all part of that self-learning journey. Ivan, I'm going to launch into, if you don't mind, I'm going to launch into your time at, at 3M. When you think back to that time, tell me about some of the key takeaways and particularly that, you know, the, the time that we all spent through COVID, I th- I'm assuming would have been a very unique time for you as the you know chief legal officer the most senior legal officer at, at 3m tell us a little bit about that what are some of the key learnings for you during that part of your career yeah it was uh, quite uh, quite an experience you know i loved my time at 3m i loved the people that i worked with um it's uh, it's a fantastic company and I frankly was not looking to leave, so but that's a different story. COVID was quite defining, as you as you said, and as I think back, I learned a lot about a number of things. I would say, first of all, very early on, our CEO articulated the three main priorities that we as a company needed to keep in the front of our minds as we were dealing with this you know, new thing that nobody really had thought much about previously. And what he said was, number one, you know, we have to protect the safety of our people. All the things we did to install, you know, sanitary measures and make sure that people could work safely, you know, with social distancing and, um, you know, working remotely, you know, people first. Number two, our job or our priority is to combat the pandemic from all angles, right? Do our part to contribute to the fight. And so whether that meant, you know, quadrupling our production of N95 respirators or, you know, ramping up our production of uh, biopharmaceutical filters uh, for the um, uh, pharmaceutical and vaccine industry. So there were a lot of things we could do as a company to actually help people who are being impacted uh, by the pandemic. 
And then number three, business continuity. We, we still have a business to run. And despite the crisis that we were facing, right, what are all the things we can do to ensure that we continue to meet our commitments to our customers? So the lesson for me was the clarity of these are the three priorities, doing that early on and making sure that the CEO sort of had this you know, company-wide, enterprise-wide, simple communication allowed everybody to understand, okay, now we know, you know, what is our, what is our key strategic priority in this moment? And so the degree to which, you know, the legal department then could use those three priorities to decide, okay, these are the things then what we need to prioritize and how can we contribute? And one of the proudest things, you know, I think we did, and, and I take no credit, this was entirely the team, we saw that there were many bad actors, right, committing fraud. You may recall that there were all these hospitals who wanted, you know, N95 respirators. And so there were counterfeiters, there were fraudsters, there were price gougers out there saying, look, I'll sell you, you know, 100 million respirators if you wire the money to me at this account. And, you know, people would, were desperate and they wired the money. And of course, there was no product. And so we stood up a program to not only help customers identify real, authentic 3M product from, from counterfeit fake product to working with law enforcement to go after the fraudsters and the price gougers to actually, you know, going through and seizing uh, counterfeit product uh, with law enforcement. So it was a multifaceted reaction or response that, you know, there was no playbook for that. We, we just organically figured out that this is the way in which we, the lawyers, could help the cause. In addition to, of course, there was a lot of work dealing with the government contracting process when the president ordered, remember, the Defense Production Act industry to produce uh, more uh, respirators for the government, to working with state and local governments, to dealing with the employment law issues of how do you deal with, you know, people who don't want to come into work and, um, you know, all the whole vaccine mandate, right? So there was, there were many difficult legal issues that we had to juggle, but having that sort of the clarity of priorities to me was an important lesson. So, and what, what a great framework, if you like, and a framework rail guards guiding lights to all of the decisions that end up being made by the organisation across all the different departments, whether it's legal finance, whatever it might, manufacturing, whatever it might be, there is something, and that what, that's what I think great leadership is all about, clarity in communication and being absolutely true. So you're walking the talk too. That there is, I think there's almost nothing more kind of galvanizing amongst any organization because everyone understands there's no room for ambiguity and it's, it's simple. So I can well imagine because certainly in my experience, when we've had that kind of clarity from and unified, there's very little else that can galvanize an organization as well. I'd like to comment, I suppose, that, you know, part of how I 
was able to contribute, I believe, was the fact that having been at the Department of Homeland Security, where leadership through crisis of bit of stock and trade, right? This is what we do is what happens if there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an earthquake or a tornado? What happens if there's another terrorist attack, right? That is what we plan for, we prepare for. And then if and when, God forbid, the time comes, you know, the government is ready to uh, bring to bear all the resources available to help um, respond to the crisis. So you're absolutely right. This has become a core competency, I'd say, of general counsel uh, these days. Yep. Yeah, now, um, and we'll do a bit more of a deeper dive into that. Tell me anything, anything that you thought was true before that period, the pandemic, which you realized was not true. And I'm going to take out remote working because people often default to that. But is there anything else in terms of learning that you know, a myth that was busted for you uh, during that time? So, of course, I was planning to go to the remote work point. So now that you've taken that away, I'd say the second thing that comes to mind is the humility of not knowing how this will play out. I think there were moments when we thought, yes, we're seeing now the decline in cases and you know, things are going to be back to or we're going to have a new normal only to see the, the Delta variant. And now uh, we're seeing you know, the tail of an Omicron and now maybe the new BA2 subvariant. So I think that's been hard on people, the, the just the uncertainty of how long is this going to last? When are we going to reach a stage of endemic, you know, pandemic or pandem endemic instead of pandemic? And so, you know, I, I think anybody who says, you know, I think, you know, next year at this time, we'll be back to normal. I, I just, I don't know. I, 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 we've said that before. And yes, we are all tired of dealing with it, uh, but I don't think we really know. And so I don't know if that's a, a, a myth busting. I think it's just, you know, a, a humility uh, about our ability to forecast. I love the way you put that, Ivan. I have to say the humility of, of accepting of that, that you don't know, because I think, you know, whether it's pandemic or other examples, we, I think as we naturally have a tendency to, um, to lean towards the group think, if you like, because that's we can, that's the way for thousands of years. That's the way we survived. We worked together, we're leading to, um, to to the group think, and, and sometimes I think we struggle to deal with a dissenting or a contrary voice because it's not it's not consistent with essentially, if you like, the way we've survived all these years. But I love the way you put that. Just just to to assume, perhaps assume you might not be right. Uh, and I think that kind of a, um, a, a, fr a framework or a, a, an approach really helps you uncover, firstly, prepare quite well, and also uncover secrets that you otherwise might have d just assumed were in fact something else. So um, I think it's a, for, for me, that's a, it's an attribute sometimes which is difficult because it's against the grain a little bit, but it's the kind of, it's part of 
it's part of the curiosity of an, an asking why bit and just kind of testing a little bit so we don't, you know, we don't fall into the trap of, you know, uh, a group think. So two books I'll mention that illustrate uh, this point that you just described. Uh, one is called Meltdown. I believe that's what it's called. It's about how systems fail. And the thing I learned is an exercise called a pre-mortem. So before you embark on a project, rather than having it fail and then do a post-mortem, bring the team together, imagine all the ways the project could fail. It gives people a safe environment in which to say, okay, here are all the failure modes, and now what can we do to prevent or mitigate the chance of, of a failure. And to me, that is a very useful practice. A second related book is called The Fearless Organization by a Harvard Business School professor whose name escapes me in the moment, but sure you'll find it. She introduces this concept of psychological safety and why it is so important that people in an organization feel comfortable speaking up and dissenting because to your earlier point, you know, groupthink is very powerful and many failures arise because there was somebody in the organization who, you know, was afraid for whatever reason to um, express a dissenting view, or maybe they did express it and it just didn't get heard. In any event, you know, I think we have a lot to learn about how to foster an environment in which people feel that there is psychological safety. I'm going to mention two things there, and I'm glad you called them out. That Meltdown has actually been on my list for the last three years. It's a popular reference. I don't know if you listen at all to Freakonomics, but um, they refer to it because there's so much behavioural you know, economics in there too. And, um, and the cycles, I haven't heard of um, the fearless organisation, but the psychological safety point, I often talk about what do employees want in, in an organisation? They want the three things you have to deliver for me is one is ensuring they feel um, heard and respected. And that's the second is an environment where it's safe to voice your whatever it might be, an opinion, a concern. And um, if you create that environment, I, it, it's that psychological safety so that the, well, hang on, so you don't fall, you know, um, uh, a victim to, to the group thing. So passionate topics of mine, I mean, because I, I love because I've seen it work really well and I've seen it work, you know, not so well. But uh, I'm glad you've called those things out. Let move forward. You, you recently took on the role as the most senior legal officer at Medtronic. You're very fresh, only a few months in. Tell me about, okay, what is your thought process and thing? How am I going to get my arms around this new role, new team, new problems, new law firm relationships, new everything? Where do you start? And what, in very high level, of course, without giving anything away, what is the kind of 30, 60, 90 day plan for getting your arms around, identifying what are going to be your priorities? So I, I don't want to turn this into a book plug, but I uh, do uh, rely upon a book I stumbled upon, uh, and there are many in this genre, but the one I've been reading is called You're in Charge, Now What? I think it's a classic, and you're absolutely right. It is important to have a 
30, 60, 90 day plan or a 100 day plan. And for me, my plan has three components. Uh, my number one priority in the first 100 days is to learn the business. Right? It's so important for the general counsel and frankly for any new executive to learn the business, whether that's learning the organizational structure, the culture, the people, the products, the competitive landscape, the customers, the regulatory landscape. There is just so much to learn and the faster one can absorb, uh, the better. Number two for me is getting to know the legal department. And for that, my purpose is to try to assess where the legal department is and how I can support uh, the department or the function in sort of trying to prioritize, come up with a, a clear vision and a mission and then a strategic plan for uh, getting to, you know, whatever the goal is, whether it's best in class or world class, or whether it's, you know, having, you know, a terrific, you know, intellectual property department or government affairs group or, or litigation team. So, you know, as part of learning the business, I need to prioritize sort of where to spend my time and energy, because as you know, it's not about me, it's about the team. Right. I need to be able to attract and develop and retain talent. And that's an important learning of, of any new leader that, that my work is done by other people. And so I need to spend time building a strong team, a strong culture, a high performing, high trust environment. And then for me, number three, you know, I still am a lawyer. And so there are those handful of issues on which I need to do a deep dive, you know, most significant litigation matters, regulatory matters. I'm dealing with our board of directors. They may have some, you know, significant issues or transactions or governance questions. So I need to come up to speed and get the deep dives uh, so that I can actually, you know, add value by affirmatively guiding, you know, the company through those important issues that really, you know, others are working on, but the board and the CEO is going to turn to me to say, Ivan, what should we do? And so I need to, you know, um, have good answers to those questions. And so, Ivan, if I was to project out, let's say two years, one is a very short time, let's say two years, you've done those three things, learnt the business really well, got to know the legal department really well, set their goals, priorities, whether they're best in class, whatever it might be, yeah, and you're handling the essentially the day-to-day function very well too. You're responding to the um, CEO, the board and so forth. Let's assume you're doing that all well. What else is success for you at a personal and also professional level feel like two years down the track? What, what do you see whether it's across those three things or beyond. So maybe I'll push back a little bit on the premise. Um, I don't think I will ever be done with those sorts of things. There is always more to learn. Most businesses are complex. We are doing complex, difficult things to alleviate pain and restore health and uh, extend life, right? Those are the 
kinds of big picture mission statements that companies like Medtronic have. So, so it is never ending to continuously improve. That said, obviously, you know, I do believe in contributing outside of Medtronic. I think it is important to pursue, you know, we talked earlier about values. So I have a particular passion for issues such as diversity and inclusion, equity. I care deeply about the, our system of justice. And so the administration of justice, improving access to justice, uh, doing pro bono, um, those are the kinds of things that I think are important. Um, I also think it's important to engage in, in the issues of the day that policy, government affairs today, companies are being asked to and, and expected to take positions um, on, on difficult policy questions. And I think you will see the ESG focus today expand so that difficult decisions and lines need to be drawn about whether to engage, and if so, to what degree. And I think those are questions that are not only endlessly sort of interesting to a lawyer, but hard because it's, a, it's not only a dynamic environment, but it's one, as you know, where you can't please everybody, right? These are often very politically divisive questions. And um, I think we are past the day where companies could simply say, no, that's, that's not what we do. Um, I think today our, our stakeholders, our employees, our customers, our communities all will turn to large car companies because that is just the world in which we now live. Correct. There, there is a level of expectation, isn't there, right now? And whether, you know, whether one agrees or disagrees, that is the position And all of those stakeholders that you talked about, the community, your shareholders, your employees, everyone, there is a level of expectation. And I think, I absolutely think the wrong thing to do is to ignore that expectation or or to essentially argue against it because it's there. And I think it's it's an argument that corporations will lose. Now there is always blurry lines, and there was always lines that a corporation you know, that, that either side at the far left or the far, far right of that blurry line is easy, <laughs> but uh, it was easy, yeah, certainly. But um, there will always be difficult decisions to make. But I think di- gone are the days where you can have a blanket um, answer for everything. We well, don't fair. engaged. So, Ivan, tell me about. Looking forward, challenges. Actually, let me step back a little bit because you've touched on it and I haven't given you a chance to do a bit more of a deeper dive and this is a common theme that comes up a lot. Tell me a little bit more about the focus on diversity, equity, inclusion and because clearly close to your heart, what are some of the initiatives that you are spending your time on that you'd like to share with the audience? Sure. Well, it's too early to say where we are going at Medtronic. I, I'm actually meeting next week, I believe, with our uh, diversity and inclusion committee. So I will learn more about the history of our um, engagement, our our priorities, our goals, our metrics, our actions, and, and our future uh, vision. I can say that uh, at 3M, you know, I was very uh, proud of, of the work that we did. I'd say 
We did a lot of work around the recruiting process. We did a lot of work around development. We did a lot of work around metrics. How do we measure our maturity uh, as a legal function? Uh, because we are all on a journey and, you know, sometimes you can't, you know, move the organization uh, beyond where it's, you know, ready and able to go. And fourth, I would say we really did a lot of work in the area of external sort of engagement with the community, whether it's supporting other organizations who are doing good work in this area or um, uh, contributing to the affinity bar associations to make sure that people have a broader network and a, and a community uh, where they feel they you know, can, can talk about and learn from um, others who are you know, ahead of them in the, in the career journey. So you know, that's not one thing, I, I would say. It was many different things, and all of which combined, I think really helped us move the needle uh, internally. Um, but of course, there's always more to do. More to do. We we are nowhere near at a point where I would say, okay, we're done. You know, we've we've reached our goals, and we can now rest. And certainly, it's, it's um, when I talk and when I ask the general counsel about the top two or three things, absolutely improving and getting better. And and many organisations are at different stages of their journey around diversity, equity, inclusion, but um, uh, almost without exception. And understandably and rightly so, it's it's among the priorities. And, and so, Ivan, then thinking about the future, if you were to call out over the course of the next five years what you see, the one or two really big issues for general councils in order to be the most effective that they can be, what do you think, what would you be calling out now? So after having just said we should be have humility about forecasting the future, I think we've touched upon maybe two or three of the things that come to mind. We've talked about the increased expectations around corporate responsibility. So ESG, I think, is not a fad. Uh, it is it is something that is here to stay, and that policy issues will continue to be a challenge for. For general counsel. Second, we touched on psychological safety, and I would add the broader topic of mental health. I think we are seeing, not just because of the pandemic, but also we talked earlier about diversity inclusion, and so I would put George Floyd and, and the ongoing racial equity issues that we see, those and other issues um, are causing, I believe, a significant degree of mental health concerns, particularly in this next generation of legal professionals that we really haven't seen before. And so I don't think most general counsel are really prepared for addressing you know, the uh, severe depression, the substance abuse, the severe anxiety uh, that we see and often don't talk about um, in our workforce and in our workplace. Third, I, I guess we've talked a bit about you know leadership during a time of great volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. I think that is continuing. I think the world continues to be ever more complex, and 
having some some clarity of vision, of mission, of values. I think that is an important aspect of leadership that um, I would argue um, needs to be part of the DNA and toolbox of, of a, a successful general counsel if, in today and in the future. And really being that business partner, right? I, I think a, a, a corollary to this point of leadership is, and we've been saying this, I now I think for some time, right? You know, being a general counsel is not just being the chief lawyer. You are an important business partner to the CEO and to the board. And that means being comfortable staying uh, or, or going a bit outside of the legal lane where really having the point of view and being able to articulate that point of view when it's a question not strictly um, you know, of a legal nature. And typically the question is not, Ivan, what's the legal answer? It's, Ivan, what do you think we should do? And that's Sorry, a very that, that 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 has a that has of course the, the the legal framework around it, but that's not the answer to the question. Ivan, what do we think we should? What do you think we should do? And again, another one of the themes that's come through from many of my discussions, understanding that the more senior you get, and experience you get, it is actually that opinion of what we should do that is sometimes more valued than the strict, you know, black letter law, what the legal answer is, because most lawyers will be able to tell you <laughs> what the legal answer is, but not necessarily be able to give you or give the board and the CEO what they're actually looking for. Agreed. Very much agreed with you. Ivan, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of my favourite questions. Um, one is advice that you'd give to your 25-year-old self, perhaps advice that we haven't spoken about yet. So let me, let, let me start with that one. Yeah, I don't really know. I, I would say don't worry so much. This is to your earlier point. The second piece of advice is, is one that I'm, I have mixed feelings about, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, it's one of those easier said than done. I would say be better and faster at assessing the political environment around you. And what I mean by that is in any organization or workplace, you will have people who are what I call your true friends. You will have people who are going to undermine you. And you will have people who, you know, may appear neutral, but actually underneath, you know, maybe a friend or may not be a friend. And I think like a lot of people, when you start in your career, I tended to be pretty oblivious to that. And I have learned over time that that actually is an important skill and capability, not to wield it in any malicious Machiavellian way, but to be able to navigate through a culture in which people may on the surface appear to be nice and helpful uh, when in fact, you know, they're not. And, you know, being in government, you know, even being in the Midwest where people are very nice uh, and yet, you know, there is human nature. And so it's not really meant as a negative comment. It's simply, you know, the, 
the, the wisdom of having been through situations where, you know, you end up sometimes being surprised that somebody would actually be out there saying negative things about you is, is, is a bit of a shock when, you know, I grew up, I would say, pretty naive and trusting and assuming good intent, uh, which is good. I, I think that's a positive thing. Um, so I'm not suggesting that, you know, I want my younger self to be more cynical, uh, but just to be more attuned to the political reality and little p political. Yeah, it, it's funny. I mean, as you're describing that, I have to say I, I, I had flashbacks to my own 25-year-old self, and that's probably exactly how I would have described myself that uh, just really wasn't attuned to any kind of that a, any anything other than the kind of naive way that I thought about things I just I think I just assumed everyone else thought in the same kind of whether, whether you call it naive or less less attuned way I, I don't know but I kind of like I do like the way you've described that La last question Ivan Anything that's keeping you up um, awake at night now? I'm very fortunate. I sleep. You very sleep well. well. That, that's, a, that's a great asset to have to be able to sleep. Uh, and a shout out for anyone who hasn't read Why We Sleep, and I'm sure you've read that, Ivan. But it's a fantastic book. And um, ha having read it, it's made me think all those times where I've deprived myself of that little hour or two or that cat nap. I I'm never doing that again. I recently went to the doctor and after a whole day of tests and everything, the doctor said, I have three pieces of advice for you, Ivan. Sleep more, eat better, and exercise more. That was it. The secret to life is right there. So sleeping is highly underrated, I think, as a factor of of happiness and success. I had dec decades, well, a long time thinking it was shortening the sleep it was the right thing to do because I was strong and I was a hard worker and I was going to be in the office earlier than it, and all of that. Now, for those of you out there that think that way, um, read the book. It's quite enlightening. And Ivan, on that note, I want to thank you very much. I've taken up plenty of your time, but I've absolutely had a blast having a discussion with you. Thank you so much for joining no, us. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank you for hosting and um, look forward to continuing our conversation. Fantastic. Thanks again, Ivan. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.